0: Today we have back with us Ian Kinney. He is the pastor of First Lutheran Church in Sabetha, Kansas. Uh, Welcome back, Ian.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back.
0: It's good to have you back. Today we're going to look at fasting. Uh, And if you look around in the world today, it is all the rage to do fasting, like intermittent fasting, whether you're one meal a day or you're you know, 16 hours of fasting versus eight hours of eating or whatever the combination is, it is all the rage. And uh, what's often missed is the historic practice of the church to fast and and how we've lost it. And so what I want to talk to you about today is uh, what is fasting uh, biblically uh, and uh, ecclesiologically uh, and then you know why should we continue to do it? Why should we do it? Um, not aping the world's love of this intermittent fasting, but rather doing it mm-hmm. because uh, because this is what we find in the scriptures. So uh, take us through that. like what are some of the definitions? What are some of the terms used throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament for fasting?
1: Yeah, so it's funny when the secular world kind of um, they think they stumble upon this great, beautiful gem that the church has had since day one, you know, and it's kind of like that with with marriage. There was this big group of feminists um, a couple of years ago who had this brilliant idea that they were going to make um, they were going to make their men sign contracts to promise to provide for them and to raise any children that they bear and they were not going to have sex with them before that. That's brilliant. (laughs) I wish somebody would have thought of that. Um, Fasting is kind of similar, is that there's this massive health kick, um, what a lot of people are calling nutritionism, which is an unfortunate worship of body and nutrition, but nutritionism, there's this massive modern interest in fasting based on health, which medically is not... Also, not new. Hippocrates would would uh, he would prescribe fasting before he would prescribe medicine very often. Um, so that's also not new. But this idea of you know like a five two fast, as uh, you've heard of that in this in this kind of new medical way of fasting where you eat normal five days and then fast for two days. Um, right. That's wild. That's prescribed in the Didache. <laughs> or. <laughs> where you fast on Wednesday and Friday, or this whole uh, intermittent fasting, well, Christians just used to call that Lent, or OMAD, this one meal a day, again, Lent, or Advent, where you just eat after Vespers, one small meal a day. So it is kind of wild that these things have come up, and all these nutritionists are like, wow, this is amazing, and, you know, the church just kind of pats them on the head, and like, yeah, you're, you'll get there, um, but what we want to focus on today is not just health, um you know there's kind of this law of double effect that when you fast you're going to lose weight but that's not the point. Um it it, it is amazing that you know um it, there's all this research now that that fasting has you know these possibilities to just kill cancerous cells and arthritis even help with schizophrenia and parkinsons and alzheimers it's it's absolutely medically amazing. Um and there's a lot to be said about that. But I'm not a doctor. Um, and so it's not going to be medical advice. So yeah, we'll talk about it biblically. So biblically, um, the words that we have for fasting in the Bible, um, uh, you know, pending your persuasion in, in, in Greek it'd be nestaiuo or nestis in Latin it'd be jejunium. And then in Hebrew it would be som. And so it's really kind of a tough word to define. Um, you know, it's, uh, Kittle, uh, you know, Kittle has his, uh, is he has this use on etymology. Um, uh, Kittle has a use on etymology that, um, that the etymology of this word or jejunium, the etymology of the word is um, really it's, it's, it's the intestine of an animal when it's empty is <laughs> the etymology of that word. And so it is basically a suffering hunger. Um, St. Anthony talks about that you're not fasting if you're not hungry. And so it's, it's an emptiness and a hunger. For us, what I think is helpful to uh, distinguish is the distinction between fasting and abstaining. And so in the church, uh, if we ever talk about this, um, we talk about fasting and abstaining as synonymous, but biblically and then historically in the West, the, the terms are distinguished. Yeah. Specifically, fasting is quantity and abstaining is quality. So, for example, fasting is not eating. Abstaining would be not eating meat or not drinking wine. So, those are kind of the definitions we're working with, is that it's a helpful distinction between fasting and abstaining. They're very often confused. They're both good, and they're both necessary, and they should be part of um, penitential seasons of fasting, but fasting is quantity. Abstaining is quality.
0: Okay. So what's the biblical basis of this then? Where where does this come up in in the Old and New Testament?
1: Yeah, so the, the biblical basis is a lot of fun. Uh, the fathers will often talk about that there is a narrative of fasting beginning in Eden and then concluding in the New Eden where there's no fasting anymore in heaven. Um, But we can see this, you know, at the very beginning, uh, before Adam is commanded to be fruitful and multiply, before Adam is commanded to fill the earth and subdue it, before Adam is commanded to have dominion over the earth, Adam is commanded to fast. He's commanded by God in paradise, do not eat. And what's kind of ironic is that you get down to brass tacks, and, and yes, there is the problem of, you know, not obeying God, which is why we were banished from Eden, but we were banished from paradise because we neglected to fast. So the origins of fasting are from paradise and commanded by God. Um, We have Noah fasting for forty days on on the ark, uh, allowed to break that fast, and again allowed to also break his abstention, mankind's abstention from meat. Um, We can talk about this later with why is fasting always connected with not eating meat in the West? Well, one of the reasons is because it goes back to a pre-diluvian state. Noah is allowed to break that off the ark. Um, We have Moses entering Mount Sinai through fasting. And, you know, the distinction is that, you know, what is the problem with the people at the bottom of Sinai? Is it Moses says that they sat down to eat and drink while Moses is up there fasting for 40 days. So fasting led to us receiving the Decalogue while it was gluttony that led to idolatry. Um, You know, it was Esau. How did Esau lose his inheritance? He refused to fast. Mm. Uh, Samuel was given to his mother once she began to fast in 1 Samuel 1. Uh, Samson, the same way, was conceived by way of fasting. Samson was also given strength by fasting. Elijah had a 40-day fast. The three young men were prepared um, through their trial, right? We will not eat the king's food. Um, and Daniel himself fasted in Daniel 10. And what's delightful is that Daniel even taught the lions how to fast. <laughs> um <laughs> So when the, when the fathers talk about this, the fathers will say that you look, you, you look through the Old Testament, you can see the fasting of David, Esther, of course, the Ninevites we always think of with Jonah, um, and the fasting of Ezra. Um, you, you cannot find a saint in the Bible who did not fast. Um, they would say that fasting was what guided the saints in their godly way of life. And either Lu, even Luther said that the fastings of the saints are the example for the Christians. Um, so you look across the old Testament and you're going to find fasting everywhere. So, and then, and what we also miss too is on the, this is a problem with a lot of English translations is when we have in English, when it says afflict yourself, Mm -hmm. um, we have this specifically on the day of atonement, um, in the book of Leviticus, it said afflict yourself or afflict your soul. Um, that language of afflict yourself, affliction, is understood um, to be the strictest fast. So we also have other examples where we see affliction, that th- it is a form of fasting in the Old Testament, um, and it also carries into the New
0: Testament as well. So you you, you earlier made a distinction between fasting, uh, which deals with quantity of, uh, of what you consume, and abstention, which deals with the quality. Uh, is there any sense in which the command to adam and eve not to eat was was that of abstaining not a fasting yeah
1: yeah no you're right i mean so to make that to make that helpful distinction is that what adam and eve are commanded to do it 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 bleeds into this homiletical narrative of fasting but yeah right you you have everything else to eat i just want you to abstain from this one thing um, right. and what we'll talk about a lot is that when the fathers the lutheran fathers uh, Isaiah himself like when when the Bible and the fathers talk about fasting um it is this again this point from paradise that the big point with that is that you you fast from things that are not sinful to help you learn how to fast from things that are sinful but we can talk right. about that a little bit later but yeah they to be very clear, it was an abstention they were given anything else anything else of the the fruit of the trees to eat
0: mm-hmm. and so how does that narrative carry forward then in the New Testament?
1: Right. So again, we have examples and we have um, clear dominical commands. Um, so we'll, we can do the examples first. Um, obviously, we have the most famous example of Christ fasting 40 days in the wilderness. We have the example of Christ fasting before his crucifixion. Some of the fathers talk about that fast being 40 hours, but you've got to kind of do some wibbly-wobbly time stuff to get 40 hours. But either way, <laughs> Jesus fasts in the desert and he fasts uh, before his crucifixion. He speaks very often of fasting, um, specifically when it comes to the work of the apostolic ministry, that especially with exorcisms and baptisms and preachings, you know, in in Matthew and Mark, he speaks of that this kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Um, we see the example, of course, of Paul fasting very regularly, uh, in the acts of the apostles. Um, we have, uh. We have, of course, the the clear statement of Christ as well uh, that we can we can delve into a little bit later. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us um, three you know a lot of things. But in this in this case, very three very clear commands we read on Ash Wednesday: uh, when you pray, when you fast, and when you give. Right. And so, what well, we'll talk about the the freedom in Christ is that. Um, it is the wisdom of the church that can teach us how to pray, how to fast, and how to give. But Jesus gives us that clear command of when you fast.
0: All right. So he's not there commanding the manner in which it happens—prayer, fasting, and giving. He's commanding right. the the actual doing of it: praying, yeah. fasting, and giving.
1: Yeah. So you know, David speaks in the Psalms about. Um, uh, seven times a day, I praise thee and at night I rise to praise thy name. So, you know, some, some of the fathers of the church have, have made that very, a uh, very important practice for them praying seven times a day, but you cannot say someone is sinning for not praying seven times a day. Tithing is a good practice. Um, uh, giving alms is a good practice, but you, you as far as the new Testament is concerned, you you can't say someone is sinning if they don't give a certain percentage and then fasting as well. Um, Fasting is, and our confessions are clear on this, but fasting has the command of God, and to omit it uh, is at, at best unwise and at worst um, sinful. Yeah. Um, but of course, we're, we're dealing with fasting from sin in the spiritual sense especially, so we could be nuanced and careful with that. But we have the command, we have the examples, we have the why of fasting we could get into later, but we don't have the how. Jesus does not command the how to fast. Um, and that is given to us in
0: the wisdom of the church. So, you know, in the Old Testament, you have the commands to, specifically for the major feasts to travel to Jerusalem around the temple. But there are uh, rules and regulations around it uh, regarding young children as well as women. Mm-hmm. It, is there any sense that you have the same thing happening or operating with regard to? Uh, w- with fasting,
1: yeah, absolutely, and so you know one of the important things to talk about um maybe equally as much, I mean Isaiah makes this point uh, equally much as important to talk about is when to fast is when not to fast um and, and who may not fast, so again, none of this is medical advice, um, but when it comes to who may not fast, you know the fathers have always been clear that there are um pretty much three, three big times you are not too fast. And when you are not too fast, um, is, um, Sundays, hospitality, or like festival days, Sundays, fest, festival days, um, feast days, basically hospitality and duress. And so we can okay. talk about those at length later, but, but yeah, especially, especially, um, pregnant women. So what I always tell folks is that, you know, we talk about fasting as spiritual medicine and it's, and you ought not take it if you are nursing pregnant or could become pregnant. Right. So this, uh, this, this, this fasting, especially in, in, for as long as, you know, a woman is in the way of the way of woman. Um, it, it for very, the majority of the church will be a masculine activity except for widows and virgins. Um, and yes, so it is not permitted for those who are nursing pregnant or could become pregnant, those who are under duress. And of course, those who are, very, very young or very, very old.
0: Okay, so then how does the West, in the tradition of the Church, uh, and yeah. in kind of a, uh, handing this down with wisdom, uh, how do they teach about this, and and what kind of direction do they give?
1: Yeah, so especially in the Western tradition, um, I, I never really want to touch Eastern fasting. It confuses me to no end. Um, the the levels of it, the the various, um, the various uh you know distinction of meats and wines and oils and fats. And I'm sure if you grow up, you know, in a in a in a Russian Orthodox house with, you know, you know, babushka to kind of teaching you your whole life, maybe it's a little bit easier. But but yeah, I really just want to focus on, like you said, the uh the Western rite of fasting. And so what we see in the historic fasting of the Western Church is a couple things. One is that Everyone who's able to do it does it. Uh, two is that there is vast diversity in the practice and three which the Luther, uh, the Lutheran fathers um, uh, the Lutheran fathers really point out is that while fasting does help us not to sin, it does not justify us before God so that's what's been passed down from the fathers to the Lutheran fathers to us today. Um, that everyone fasted, it was diverse, and while it helps us not to sin, it does not justify us before God.
0: So those, those, those three things, um, everyone fasted who could, but in various ways, um, and while it helps us not to sin, it, we're not justified by these actions. Right. We,
1: so, we, we, so we quote Irenaeus in our confessions, right? That diversity in fasting does not destroy the harmony of our faith. Mm-hmm. St. Gregory as well, um, he, says, uh, he says that a diversity in fasting does not violate the unity of the church. And when the fathers write to each other like, you know, hey, what are you, you know, how are you guys fasting in Illinois? How are you guys fasting in Kansas? When the, when the ancient fathers write to each other like that, the letters show a vast diversity. N- never a question of if, right? Because the Lord is clear mm-hmm. when, not if. Never a question of if when the fathers write, but how, So a big example of this is pretty much everyone knows this kind of colloquial phrase, when in Rome, but when in Rome is a phrase about the diversity of fasting. So there's a time that St. Augustine tells us when his mother, St. Monica, went from uh, North Africa to Milan, and she was really upset that the Christians in Milan did not fast on Saturdays. And so Mm -hmm. her and Augustine are, are like offended by this. And so Augustine writes a letter to St. Ambrose, and Ambrose writes this, Ambrose says, when I'm in Milan, I fast like the Milanese do, but when I am in Rome, I fast as the Romans do. So do as the Romans do. So when in Rome comes from this idea of the diversity in fasting. Never a question of, and Ambrose is not questioning that Christians should clearly fast on Wednesday and Friday from the Didache but it was that the local custom, whether or not to fast on, on Saturdays. So what's what's wild about this diversity is that, you know, the church is very clear on this diversity that, and that is permitted for a, for a pretty long time. Um, but what this diversity is incredible is that the fathers took fasting so seriously um, that, that I'm convinced uh, fasting either as much, if not more than the filioque, Was what led to the Great Schism of ten fifty four. Well, how so? So, in 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 the in the primary documents um, between the Patriarch of Constantinople and the and the Bishop of Rome, when they're in this you know what two hundred year fight with each other, up until ten fifty four, when when the Bishop of Constantinople, when the Church of the East writes to the Church of the West, um, about but he writes five abuses. Two of which are about fasting, only one of which is the filioque. So, this is two parts of this letter um, about regulations of fasting and, and not letting the East fast in the diverse way that they do. Um, the other part was, which we will enjoy, the, another part was, you know, uh, getting mad. Uh, the Bishop of Constantinople would say, You get mad at us for having married priests, but all your priests live in adultery with a bunch of concubines. And then <laughs> the other one was uh, the Bishop of Rome not giving his consent for bishops or for, for priests to do the sacrament of confirmation and not bishops, um, which is a, a long argument as well. But then the fifth one is the filioque that the East was mad about. But the first two are a matter of fasting. So, in response to this, you know, what does a Pope do when he gets a letter like that? He writes back this uh, Pope Leo. Uh, the ninth writes back. This he says, "I am the successor of the apostle Peter, and he <laughs> has invested me with a supreme authority over the universal church, and my word is law for the faithful to obey." End quote. So they argue about this fasting for like two hundred years, and again these other points as well. So then one day, uh, a delegation of, of of bishops is sent to uh, Constantinople from Rome. And they have a lot of unsuccessful debates. And one day, uh, the papal representatives walk into the Hagia Sophia on a Saturday when they're preparing for divine liturgy in the year 1054, and they slap down a bull of excommunication on the altar, and they leave. And there's your schism. And, you know, of course, we always think about this as the filioque, but when the delegates write letters after this debacle, they write about that it was a matter of fasting. They say, and this is a quote, they would say, that the Greeks are acting like a bunch of Jews to retain Saturday as a Sabbath like a Jew would, but we Latins, he said, are faithful Christians who still fast on Saturday. So Mm. that's regrettable. That's, I mean, Irenaeus is very clear about this, um, that, that this diversity of fasting does not, should not, let's say, create a great schism. But what's wild is that while we see how varied the practice is, um, It was taken so seriously. Something that we forget about, we look at with animosity, because maybe somewhere, sometime, Luther might have said something polemically mean about it. Um, They took it so seriously, it contributed to one of the greatest schisms that the church has ever seen. So I I find that to be profound, this seriousness in the mind of our fathers over a practice that we have at least forgotten, if not look at with animosity.
0: Yeah, uh, but that is a common response. Where you know we see diversity in something, and so we we begin to think, oh, so it doesn't matter, instead of thinking, yeah, right, 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 thinking. Well, the practice itself matters, as we can see, everyone is doing it. It's just not the degree to which everyone goes is what matters. Um, yeah, we do not demand so that the rights and b- customs must. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, we we just throw the baby out with the bathwater.
1: Yeah, we totally do. Right. Uh, And we don't command that rites and customs have to be the same everywhere, but uh, I mean, and that's and that's on its own, right? But but again, this this dominical command of fasting is there, but we don't demand that the rites and ceremonies about how it's done, when it's done, and how long it's done should be the same everywhere because Jesus doesn't. But the wisdom of the church does give us wisdom how.
0: So, what does the rest of the wisdom in the West indicate?
1: Yeah, so there's that that one fun anecdote. Besides that, again, we mentioned the Didache, which um, if our, our listeners don't know, the Didache is um, this, uh, this document uh, that was not discovered until very recently. Um, we had lost it um, for a long time, but the fathers always quoted it. Um, this document, the Didache of the Twelve Apostles, uh, they would always call it. So the word... Um, The word uh, didache means the teaching, Um, and I I think it was not discovered until the late 1800s to where we finally actually found this document. Well, nevertheless, uh, in this document, uh, it it speaks about uh, Christians being, I guess we could say encouraged, but pretty much expected to fast on Wednesday and Friday throughout the entire year. And the Didache, uh, it, there's some things in the internal evidence that show an antiquity of being at least in the time of the apostles. So it's taken very seriously. So the Didache tells us uh, the wisdom of the church is It says, "It says, don't fast like the hypocrites, who are the Pharisees, that fast on Monday and Thursday, but we Christians fast on Wednesday and Friday. Um, so we... Um, the fathers make clear elsewhere that we fast every week except for um, uh, Christmas and Eastertide on Wednesday and Friday because on Wednesday the Jews gathered to betray our Lord and on Friday he suffered our death. The Jews would fast on um, uh, Monday and Thursday because there was a tradition that Moses went up Sinai on a Thursday and came back on a Monday. Uh, we see Clement of Alexandria, who's like 150 A.D., uh, he encourages the Wednesday, Friday fasting. Wednesday, Friday fasting. Um, we see this in Irenaeus, Clement, um, uh, Shepherd of Hermas, uh, Basil, Hippolytus. I mean, all the fathers. All the fathers would talk about this at length um, on the, the how to do it. But uh, like we said, of course, the wisdom um, of the church is not necessarily the command of our Lord.
0: So we should take away from that that it is. A practice that was extremely important to all of the church because of what our Lord had commanded, uh, but how we take, uh, how we go about doing that, uh, there is a certain freedom. But we we can learn from from the practice of our fathers and the faith before us.
1: Yes, absolutely, and we absolutely have to.
0: So, uh, what about the Lutheran fathers? Is there any? anything in the confessions and in their teachings, how do they speak about this?
1: Yeah. So there is this wonderful quote by Thomas Winger on fasting, who says that there is a Lutheran opposition to fasting, he says, born out of a garbled recollection of what Luther says, not about fasting, but as a preparing for the Lord's Supper. A garbled (laughs) recollection of what Luther said. So. Uh, when it comes to Luther you know when you actually you know read what he said um Luther uh, again assumes the Christian will fast and, and Luther says that because gluttony is one of the greatest tools of the devil fasting is going to be one of the strongest weapons of the Christian he says it naturally follows a Christian life it draws us closer to Christ and this is in line with all the fathers of the West and the Lutheran fathers. So Luther assumes Christians will fast. Um, we also have this, um, you know, we also have the, uh, um, the Lutheran confessions that speak of this at length, and um, in, in especially the uh, uh, Augsburg Confession and its apology that fasting is a necessary service and that it has God's command. Uh, or, you know, Apology um, 12, says that prayer, charity, and fasting have God's command and should not be omitted. But like we always say, we don't command that rites and ceremonies be the same everywhere. So the, the Lutheran fathers, and we can go through um, a, a couple here now. Um, you know, we we have we have Luther that uh, you know he supports the practice, and this is the big point with the Lutheran fathers' critique: is that the Lutheran fathers' critique, like Isaiah does the abuse of fasting, not the practice of fasting. You can't critique the practice of fasting because Jesus told you to do it. So Mm -hmm. you can critique the abuses. And Luther, you know, Luther even says, he says, I would love it if everybody would fast from the same stuff on the same day throughout the year. He said, I would love that. But he said, I can't legislate that. So Luther you know, he wants to restore proper fasting because, again, because of how important it is. Um, but again, he writes the point that it's to discipline the body, to cut off lust, um, and and to uh, to curb from sin. But it is not to justify before God. That is the critique the fathers make, the Lutheran fathers make, is that it is good, commanded by our Lord, but it does not justify. Um when, when Andre and Chemnitz write their, uh, their agenda uh, in 1569, uh, um, uh, once again, they, they don't critique the practice but the abuse. And what they say in the agenda, in, in their 1569 agenda, they say, a preacher has to deal with this matter of fasting with discretion so that he guards himself when he speaks against papistic fasting, lest, they say... It be interpreted that fasting was a sin, which they conclude Scripture cannot allow. So, of course, is it better to um, to have a very modest, uh, a very small modest meal of a, a, a simple, you know, cooked uh, chicken leg on Friday, or is it better, as the Lutheran fathers would say, um, is it really better if you just gorge yourself on expensive wine and 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 the best? Uh, the best seafood you can find as long as you're not eating, you know, meat on Friday. We're really missing the (laughs) spirit of the fast there. So those are some of the fathers. I mean, a lot of the Lutheran fathers, Bugenhagen has a great couple writings on it as well. Um, And, uh, and Chemnitz of course speaks to it at length in his examination of Trent and our confessions laud it as a necessary, uh, a necessary service, they say.
0: So do they, Lutheran fathers make a distinction between fasting and abstinence, uh, as we talked about earlier. That's typically what you see in our day, like the giving up of one thing.
1: Yeah, which I, which we could talk about later of how to revive this practice. That I think that's a good that's a good modern foothold to maybe get back into this. Is that a lot of folks are familiar with giving something up for Lent, which that's going to be an abstention. Um, the Lutheran Fathers, I, I guess I would have to delve into to see when and where they make more distinctions. But they, I think they make these distinctions without always using the words. So they do talk about right um, um, abstaining from wine or from meat uh, or from <laughs> sleeping in your bed. I mean, stuff like that. Um, whereas they, they do make a distinction between the two, maybe without using the exact words that we would. Um, and again, what 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 they're doing when they critique the abuse, it is not different than what the ancient fathers said, nor Isaiah. Um, I mean this this beautiful chapter that Isaiah has in Isaiah 58. Uh, he speaks about fasting, and the and the Lord is just you know critiquing this fake fasting to no end. Um, the the Lord's quoting the people. And, you know, they, they mock the abuses of fasting in Isaiah 58. And they say, why have we fasted, but you didn't notice it? We humbled ourselves, but you didn't see it. <sighs> you know, he's, he's mocking them that you're just doing this as an outward show. And Isaiah says, he says, look, on the day of your fasting, you do whatever you want. You're mean to all your servants. Your fasting only ends in fighting. You hit each other. He said, you cannot fast as you do and then think that your voice is going to be heard on high. An interesting implication is that if you fast well, um, that, that is associated with prayer. Interesting implication. But but the Lord says in Isaiah 58, he says, is this really the fast I have chosen? Just a day for people to humble themselves to be seen by other men? He says, is it really just for bowing your head and wearing sackcloth? Is that is that a fast you think is acceptable to me? He says, no. He says, this is the fast I have chosen, that you loose the chains of the injustice, you untie the cords of the yoke, you set the oppressed free and share your food with the hungry and provide the poor with shelter. You see the naked and clothe them and do not turn away from your flesh and blood. That's Isaiah 58, that this fasting has such a depth of spirituality to it that you are to fast from things that are not sinful, like meat and cheese and wine are you know regular things that we abstain from in fasting, but they're not sinful, but lust and pride and greed are sinful. And this fasting helps you um, fast from those things. So, the Lutheran fathers—they um, are echoing these comments. Uh, of you know, Jeremiah speaks of this, Sirach speaks of this, um, Samuel speaks of this as well. Remember the stupidity of Saul's fast, where he just made up this fast one day, and then Jonathan broke it by being hungry and eating some honey. Um, yeah. Or Jezebel's fake fast—remember when she when she basically assassinated Naboth? Um, she called for a fake fast, you know, to basically um, cover up her doing so. These are all abuses of which the the Old Testament prophets speak of, and and that's the same thing the Lutheran fathers are doing as well, not a critique of the practice, but because the practice is so serious, when you abuse it, it's that much more serious.
0: Uh, And this kind of harkens back, you mentioned Sirach, uh, to our last discussion, uh, making Mm -hmm. use of the Apocrypha uh, for Christian living.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I mean, yeah. So when the fathers talk about this, like we said last time, is that the Apocrypha is especially good for for, for, for morals and Christian living. And so, you know, two places, uh, I don't have it written down here, but two places off the top of my head come to mind is Tobit 12 and Sirach 34. So Sirach 34 talks about that that you, you need to fast because of your sin. But if you go and commit your sins again, then what was the point of it? Uh, or, or Tobit when the angel Raphael is talking to Tobit he says that um, he says prayer is good when it is accompanied by fasting so so yeah the, there's several parts in the Apocrypha um, where it speaks of the goodness of fasting for the for the human soul
0: so what are the the events or how did we end up losing this if if indeed the Lutheran fathers hold it up if indeed yeah. the the Tradition of the Western Church hold it up uh, as a good practice, as well as a commanded practice, uh, mm-hmm. though not justifying, but uh, but helpful in training the avoidance of sin. What happened? Uh, how did how did it fall into disuse? So I think there are
1: three categories um, that I have found of why we have lost this practice. One is. There's some historical reasons. Uh, The second one is some linguistic reasons. And the third one are some anecdotal reasons. So we can go through them in that way. So historically, uh, the research seems to play out that the decline of fasting starts at the Crusades. It amps up at the Industrial Revolution. And then it also amps up when there's, um, when vespers and vigils get moved earlier. So in the Crusades, there are these Uh, There's this research that shows that when we were down fighting the Muslims um, uh, and trying to protect the Christians whom they were beheading, um, we were down fighting the Crusades, especially the first, I think, if not the second as well. Keeping the old strict fast of Lent, which means, which in, in the in the old world before the Crusades, the Lenten fast was you went vegan. No animal product, no animal byproduct except for the annunciation and, and not even St. Joseph's Day, historically, just the Annunciation, you'd break the fast a little bit. So they're having no milk, no eggs, no cheese, no meat, and they're not eating till after Vespers every day. And we're losing. <laughs> <laughs> and so the bishops lessened the fast. They said, they said, you know, you, you guys need to win this war. You know, we'll we'll kind of take this fat. Well, you know, we'll lessen this fast a little bit. So Historically, there's the first one, it starts to be removed. The second one is the Industrial Revolution, where you have ungodly hours of of intense labor. And so you've got Lutherans and Catholics who are working next next to Baptists and Methodists and not being able to keep up, you know, especially in Advent and Lent. So it was kind of just slowly went away because I have to work. Mm-hmm. And then last historical contribution is that the end of the day and the end of Lent eventually got moved up. So we, taught, we call the middle of the day noon. And that is from the old word knowns, which is the ninth hour of the day, which was, which was 3 p.m. So Vespers slowly got moved up from, from 6 to 3 to noon, and that's where we get the word noon. Um, and then, you know, you know, we, know well, we all know Lent became shorter, Right, sept um, septuagesima, right? Uh, the gesima season, you know, pre-lent. That was, I mean, it wasn't as much fasting as the quadagesima, but there was still fasting involved, as well as Advent, mm-hmm. A- and that just, and that just, and Advent was shortened from six weeks to four weeks. Um, so historically, Advent starts um, on Saint Martin's Day, um, and that got moved shorter, and then vigils got moved shorter. That it started vigils started moving up from. You know, midnight to eleven, to ten, to nine, to you know, just like four or five in the afternoon. So, those are three historical reasons. Um, the next one we can see is that there's linguistic reasons we've lost it as well. So, in in German, Latin, and Greek, the forty days leading up to Easter are called the forty days of fasting. So, in German, the forty days before Easter are called Fastenzeit. Which is the time of fasting? Mm-hmm. In Latin, um, they're called the quadrigesima jejunia, which means the forty days of fasting. And in Greek, they are called um, the Tesseracoste Nestia, which is the forty days of fasting. In English, we call it Lent, which means, hey, it's getting light outside, <laughs> right? The days, the days are lengthening. So, what all the fathers, even you know, even in German. Um, it's fastenzeit, time of fasting, to where even the, the use of the word reminded you that, that this should be a time of fasting, and we've lost that in English. Lastly is anecdotal, um, and I think, and this is, this is speculation, um, but anecdotally, I think that in, in a modern idea, in the modern idea for Lutherans is that, again, that's Catholic, and we don't do that. Just mm-hmm. like we talked about last time, the Apocrypha is Catholic, you know? Uh, you go find your great grandfather's 1920 CPH Bible. The apocrypha's in there, and then your whole worldview is shaken. But the 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 apocrypha and fasting are seen as Catholic, and we don't do that. We still have pews like the Catholics do and read the gospel. But but I guess that's okay. But but fasting is seen as Catholic, anecdotally. And and the next thing, which is probably my pet peeve, is this gag order we've put on fasting. Right. So what's the joke every Ash Wednesday? first rule of fight club, right? Don't talk about fight club. Never club. First rule of fasting, don't talk about fasting. And that's really funny if the prophets and our Lord and the apostles and the fathers and the Lutheran fathers didn't talk about fasting. That would be funny if it was not contrary to the entire history of the church. Mm-hmm. So we put a gag order on it and we don't talk about it, which means we don't teach about it. But for some reason beyond me, the same metric that Jesus applies to prayer and giving is never applied to fasting. When in fact Jesus has more severe uh, censures on prayer and giving than he does on fasting. Jesus says that you just need to develop a schizophrenia when you give that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand's doing, and he says you shouldn't pray unless you go into your room, into a closet, into a corner, and shut the door. So why has the giving of money, which we have tons of, um, we have tons of programs in the LCMS about teaching tithing. Pastors rightly harp and harp on reading the Bible and praying. Why is that okay? But first rule about fasting is don't talk about fasting. Mm-hmm. So obviously the intention, you know, if, if you're if you're being braggadocious about about fasting and um, and doing it for pride, surely surely that is wrong. But we have entire synodical projects and books and sermon series about giving and prayer when Jesus has more harsh critiques about pu- publicly talking about those. So, so then why? Why have, we, why have we done this with fasting? Unless it is that it is a more, that it is a deeper God for us maybe than our money and our time. A deeper God maybe right now is our belly. And so we don't want to talk about not feeding the God. So,
0: those yeah, three
1: big sections are are what I, the reasons that I would say from, you know, historical research and maybe some anecdotes are how we've lost the practice.
0: So, uh, how do we revive this? How do we get back to square one?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so Jesus says, when you fast, right? <laughs> but then when should I fast? <laughs> he doesn't command me on when. Um, and so there is you know there's the clear command from scripture to do it but we don't have the how and and the how is the how is really just like anything else just to to prepare the just dis- prepare to discipline yourself and start and we can talk about ways that that happens but one thing i want to say is um is that this isn't going to kill you again this is not medical advice but there's this there's this case study of a guy from Scotland he was uh, he was my age he was 27 He weighed 456 pounds, and he fasted for 382 days, taking only water, tea, coffee, and vitamins. I don't think anybody should do that, but the point would be when you start doing this, you're not going to die if you don't have lunch that day, right? which is contradictory to what all of our mothers told us for the past 200 years, especially coming out of the Great Depression, right? Um, You're not going to die. So, One thing to get started is that incrementalism uh, is going to be key. That if you have not been to the gym since you were in high school and you go and throw up 315 on bench like you could do as a senior in high school, buddy, you're going to die. That actually will kill you. Um, So, in the same way here, you have to work up to 315 on bench. You also have to work up to a very strict Lenten fast. So, incrementalism is going to be key. Um, and we can talk about that in a moment. The next big key to starting is don't do it. I mean, you can do it by yourself, but it's going to be a lot easier if you do it with somebody, a family, a congregation, a circuit of pastors. But when you do it, don't be annoying about it, right? Don't be <laughs> braggadocious and prideful. And then, you know, make sure that you tell everybody or uh, make fun of people for not doing it with you right um, especially when you know you've not been doing it all your life and I know it's exciting to start a new spiritual discipline, but don't be annoying about it. So incrementalism um, we can we can talk in a minute if you want about all the various ways the church has fasted. but I think primarily the easiest way to start, right? The greatest feast is the Lord's Supper, which means that it deserves a fast every time. Mm. So the easiest way to start, uh, personally, pastorally, congregationally, is to revolve your fast around the greatest feast, which is the Lord's Supper. So the easiest way to start is after supper on Saturday night. You don't eat until after the Lord's Supper the next day. Um, that's the easiest way to start. And then beyond that, um, it's easiest to start next in Lent, and start with uh start with a Wednesday, Friday in Lent. Um, this comes up on, I mean, it's the reading on Ash Wednesday, right? From Joel two and Matthew six. Um, uh, you know, so it's easy to start in Lent, maybe start on Ash Wednesday and then start on a Friday in Lent. And then every year you add a little, you add another plate, right? Not like a food plate, like a weight plate. You add another plate on the bar and you do a little bit more every year. And so we, we, again, we can talk about these now at length, but you, you can add more every year to the fast and grow in grace and holiness. And as the fathers say, uh, this can help curb from sin, but again, not thinking that you're justifying yourself by it.
0: Well, it's kind of interesting because, uh, and most churches that I've either attended or been a pastor of during Lent, we actually meet for meals and they tend to be really large meals on Wednesday (laughs) do,
1: Yeah. And I, and I really don't know if I don't really know, um, Depending on how long our Lord tarries, I don't actually know if that could really ever go away. I think that's so ensconced in in uh, you know the last decades of Lutheran tradition, that would be I'd be a hard to get to get rid of that. But is that is that possible at a congregation maybe to where Advent and Lenten meals get moved to after church? That's a lot more it's a lot mm. more fun to to eat after you pray. I mean, you're, you, you, you know, prayer is always accompanied by fasting, and it's a lot more fun to eat afterwards because then you can, you know, take as long as you want and not have to be rushed upstairs, and the pastor's not burping through his sermon because he just had like three bowls of, you know, beef stew. Um, is there a possible way that could be done in a congregation? I really, really don't know. Um, but Advent yeah. and Lent, you know, they're, they're, these, they're these two seasons that mirror each other. Some churches still retain the old um, violet vestments for Advent, even right? The historic violet vestments that that connect us to uh, to Lent. So mm-hmm. possibly that's a way, or possibly the meals just become a little bit simpler, which is a great way to start fasting by way of abstention, giving something up or just not having extravagant meals and giant meal. Mm-hmm. So there are several ways we could talk about that the church has shown us um, fasting in, in the past.
0: Yes. Yeah, so um, we have neighbors who are Roman Catholics and whenever we mm-hmm. get together uh, in Lent, if it's on a Friday, they're, they're not eating meat. Uh, is this right? Is this a way yeah. forward? And what, you and, and, and where did that practice come from? Why meat?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a good practice and I think it is a way forward again with all the contingencies of Isaiah and the Lutheran fathers that you're not doing this to justify and that you're not sinning if you do have meat. So, this tradition is, you know, this tradition is really when we look back through it. Um, this tradition of not eating meat on Fridays, historically, here's how the tra- here's how the transmission went. It wasn't just Fridays; it was Wednesdays and Fridays all year. So part of your fasting every Wednesday and Friday was was no no meat, no no beef, no chicken. Um, uh, so no no meat. That was Wednesday, Friday, and then Advent and Lent. It was the whole time no meat historically, um, is that the historic practice was no meat the entire penitential seasons. And, and, and really this goes back so far that no one seems to know where it came from. It's like all the early, all the early fathers are like, Lent has been around, you know, forever. And they're only like, you know, a hundred years past the apostles. So, um, so we have to kind of maybe speculate a little bit. So every Wednesday and Friday were meatless, uh, Advent and Lent were meatless. And these have always gone hand in hand. And one of the ways we can think about is this. Wednesday is the day when our Lord gave up his flesh to be betrayed. Friday is the day when our Lord gave up his flesh on the cross. So on those days when our Lord gave up his flesh, we also give up flesh in our fasting. Um, Advent and Lent are the penitential seasons. They were meatless times in repentance for sin because it was for sin that Christ gave up his flesh for us. And what's also interesting is that not eating not eating meat, and we can talk about why fish, because you can eat, you can not eat meat, but you don't, that doesn't assume fish. Um, Not eating meat, that's a diet that takes us back to both pre-Diluvian before the flood and pre-lapsarian before the fall. Mm -hmm. So, Basil makes this interesting comment that he said, God only permitted meat when the hope of our perfection was lost. It's an interesting comment. But in paradise, the only diet was fruit because there's no death in paradise. And if you pick an apple, the tree doesn't die. But if you eat a carrot, the carrot dies. So the only food that was eaten in, in paradise was fruit. And then after the fall, by the sweat of your brow, now you will eat bread, right? You got to kill that, you got to kill that wheat stalk to get bread. Mm. And then after the flood, more death was permitted for our for our life, right? We were then permitted to eat meat. So not eating meat takes us back to a pre-diluvian and and pre-lapsarian. There's also a little bit of a kind of natural law thing here that men who regularly struggle with lust, right? uh, The time of Advent and Lent and repentant times are good times, like any time, to repent of that lust. And what's interesting in a natural law way is that not eating red meat for men will reduce libido. And so, it will make it a little easier to begin not to lust and act out on that lust because it will reduce your libido so that's meat though and that does not presume fish and a, f- a fun story is that when some of the french trappers got to america and they're trapping fur up in the north like wisconsin area um they sent a letter to their bishops and they said look guys we- we're here in the new land and uh you know it's lent but uh, there's this animal that we think we, we're pretty sure it should be counted as a fish. And it was a muskrat. And so <laughs> they're like, the muskrat lives in water. It swims in water. I mean, it, it's with the fish. It deserves to be counted as a fish. And the bishop's were like, oh yeah, that's fine. So I've never been there, but I hear that in some places up north, they still have not fish fries in Lent, but <laughs> muskrat fries <laughs> in Lent because of this weird dispensation given by the bishops. But then why fish? And again, this idea of fish, we, we really we can't date it. We can't find its beginning. It just seems that old. But what I think is interesting is that the only food our Lord eats in the resurrection is fish. Mm. Every yeah. time that's all Jesus is eating in the resurrection. and i and I, I think it has to harken back to this idea that he says in isaiah twenty five that on that day, I will swallow up death forever, that now this time, Jonah doesn't get eaten by the fish. No, this time Jonah eats the fish. So I think that this, and I can't prove this, but I think in speculation that this is this food of the resurrection. That though you know, though we though we suffer, right? Uh, that Alleluia cannot always be our song while here below. That we are still eating this food of the resurrection. That Jesus has swallowed up death forever. Um, you know, um, swallowing up Leviathan interesting too on some altar pieces when it's an altarpiece of the Last Supper you'll have the bread and the wine of course but you'll also have a plate of fish next to Jesus mm. you know and then and then of course there's there's so much speculation on why there's fish at the feeding of the 5,000, but is it this fact that this is the meal of victory that swallows up the fish um that swallows up Leviathan that this time Jonah uh, the sign of Jonah uh, swallows the fish instead of um, Jonah being swallowed by the fish so that is that is meat that is fish and that's um, that's a fine practice um, that's a fine practice to to abstain from meat and to even to eat fish um, but again uh, these things do not justify and we cannot legislate them because the Lord has not
0: done so So in other words doing that on say like Wednesdays and Fridays in Lent or in Advent is a great incremental way. To begin yeah. uh, making this a part of uh, a part of your your discipline, um, are there other options? Are there other uh, times specifically where we can begin? You know, if we're not quite there to do it year round, are there other times that we can say, "Okay, I am going to set this time aside, just like I set Lent or Advent aside, to mm-hmm. partake of these things."
1: Yeah, so incrementalism is going to be key.
0: Um, incrementalism being just
1: adding a little bit every year or every season or something. That's going to be key. For pastors, there's a lot more time, I think, that what we see in the gospel and the history of the church is that any time a pastor is going to uh, preach, teach, baptize, exercise, celebrate the exorcise like a demon, celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, all of that um, should be prepared for by way of fasting, that any pastoral act, uh, baptism, exorcism, Lord's Supper, preaching, teaching—all of that should be um, that should be prepared for by fasting, and that's also a great way to help a congregation. In because after a while, someone's going to notice like, Pastor never eats before church on Wednesday. Like, do we need, does he need like is he anorexic? Does he need a doctor, <laughs> or um, or whatever? Like, you know, we don't see Pastor eat a lot. And then there's that there's that fun old uh, that fun old saying that guy's thin as a saint. Why are saints Why are saints thin? <laughs> So he's thin as a saint. Um, so that's also a good example um, a good example of fasting to the congregation. So for pastors, um, if you're going to baptize or preach or teach or do these things, you you could, and I would say should fast prior. Um, the other time is Wednesday, Friday or appropriate year round and they can be Wednesday Friday and incrementally you can not eat until after three. So 3 pm. is the hour our Lord died on the cross. So that's an appropriate time or after 6 p.m. after Vespers, that's an appropriate time to eat as well um, or just not till the end of the day, whatever it might be. So Wednesdays and Fridays are a really easy one, um, which, you know, the modern nutritionist would just call one meal a day or intermittent fasting. The church just calls <laughs> Wednesday, Friday, um, <laughs> the, the, you know, the greatest feast is 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 the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And so the greatest time is called the Eucharistic fast, which is to be very clear. Not fasting from the Eucharist, but fasting prior to it. Um, that's a very important distinction these days, I guess. So uh, <laughs> fasting before the Eucharist is, is important as well. And that's, you know, again, Saturday night, um, just don't eat. And, and that makes, uh, uh, that, that creates the fast for the next day. So fasting before the divine service. Then there's the penitential seasons, namely Advent and Lent. So again, these have been shortened. So I would say pre-Lent is a fine time to maybe add one day, and then Lent is a good time to add um, two days. Um, Advent used to be called St. Martin's Lent, which would begin November 11th, and then it'd be a time of fasting until Christmas. It was even called the the Quadragesima of St. Martin, the 40 days of fasting of St. Martin. Um, And then that fast is broken, you know, either on Christmas Day or after Christmas Midnight, whatever it might be. And then there's Lent. And you know, Lent is a great time to begin these practices. Um, One thing we remember in our kind of cultural knowledge is Mardi Gras, right? Mardi Gras, which is of course now this debaucherous mess. Mardi Gras is just French for Fat Tuesday, which is the day before Ash Wednesday.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Or uh, Carnival is just etymologically a farewell to meat, Fat Tuesday, right? Sometimes in English, we think about it as Pancake Day or uh, Tag in German or Shrove Tuesday in Old English. Um, the day you go to confession before Ash Wednesday. Um, you know, we have that memory um, and there's ways to revive that congregationally to where, you know, like Fat Tuesday or it was called Pancake Day in English because you would get rid of your butter, your flour, your oil and your eggs. The easiest way to do that is to make a bunch of pancakes. So Lent is going to be, you know, familiar of a time where you give something up, and that's like one of the remaining vestigial organs left over from what used to be fasting. Um, mm. And this is going to be the most important time leading up to the Easter Vigil. Um, and again, that needs to be done incrementally over the years. But Advent and Lent are going to be our two heavy hitters here. Um, you can also look in the Treasury of Daily Prayer; has a great little excerpt on what are called Ember Days. Um, Um, ember days, this time of fasting, almsgiving, and prayer, that take us back to the old schedule of fasting on Saturdays. So it'd be four times a year, the Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, um, uh, four times a year, um, surrounding the Feast of Holy Cross, um, St. Lucy, um, Pentecost, and Ash Wednesday, uh, they take us back to a, a time of um, of, of, a, of a three day a week fast, uh, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. So, those are a good time. There's also um, Rogation days uh, that take place after um, Saint Mark's Day, um, and uh, these I mean these are these are days uh, Ember days and Rogation days are very earthy, crunchy fast. They're they're times of fasting in prayer for our crops and fields and seeds. And then the in the dead of winter, right? The the prayers for the next year, um, mm-hmm. and then I think uh, one of our last ones would be really probably one of the most obscure: the Apostles' Fast, and that is, I mean, that goes back to um, Saint Leo. Talks about this as again being a historic practice at the time of Saint Leo, and it begins. It's a fast that begins after the octave of Pentecost, and it goes until the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, and because of the way the church calendar works, that's gonna differ how long it is every year, but the apostles' fast is another one. So with all that in mind, you know any time of vigil, right? So you're having a vigil before the apostles' fast, a vigil before Easter, a vigil before Christmas, um, that vigil, that time of intense prayer and almsgiving um, can be accompanied by fasting.
0: So you've already talked about when you shouldn't fast, like Sundays, uh, feast days, if you're in duress or, uh, enjoying hospitality, uh, are there other things associated with not fasting?
1: Yeah. So again, those are going to be the big ones is festival days. You know, there's 52 holidays a year and they're called Sunday. And we have these festival days every, every week. Um, and that's not appropriate to fast on that day. It's just, it's not appropriate. Every Sunday is a feast day, right? Um, they, what does Jesus say that they will, they will, uh, uh, when the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will fast. But when the bridegroom is with them, how can they fast? Right. So mm-hmm. even in Lent, um, you know, there is an appropriateness of maybe abstention on Sundays. But, uh, you know, even in Lent, Sunday Sunday is a time to eat because it's a feast. Uh, and mm-hmm. of course, uh, like, you know, we talked about in Lent, uh, Annunciation, I think you'd probably know better, almost always falls in Lent. Is that Right.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a Braden question.
1: <laughs> okay, well, we can call him later, I guess. But I'm pretty sure it almost always falls in Lent, and it was always a lessening of the fast. Mm-hmm. It was called an oasis in Lent. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is hospitality, and this this is almost as ancient as fasting itself, if not more so. Um, this rule of hospitality that you find especially in, in Hippolytus, um, and and the gist of it is is that if someone is kind enough to feed you, then their kindness is more important than your fast. St. John Cassian yep. would talk about how the strictest desert monks would break their fast if a visitor visited their monastery, and they would give that guy all the food they were saving for themselves for Easter. So the point is that if someone is if someone is showing you charity, you know, St. Benedict of Nursia would say that fasting in his rule that fasting is broken for the sake of guests. He says charity is of more value than fasting. So, you know, domestically, if you start to fast as a father, and we'll talk about duress in a moment with your wife, but if you start to fast as a father and a husband, and let's say you want to take up, you know, not having meat on Fridays, and your wife makes you a burger, you say nothing. Right. (laughs) Right. The (laughs) kindness of your wife, or you go to a parishioner's house on Ash Wednesday. So you go to a parishioner's house on Ash Wednesday, And they lay out these two honking cinnamon rolls covered in butter. That might break your heart if you're taking your fast seriously, but my friend, you say nothing. The hospitality of Christians is more important than the fasting of a Christian. So, Mm -hmm. hospitality. Uh, And then duress. So, you know, we, we had this with the Crusades, right? You guys are fighting. You need to eat. You guys are working in the Industrial Revolution. Granted, in a questionable, ungodly way, but nevertheless, you're trying to provide for your families. You're deployed. Um, whatever it might be, right? You're taking medicine, um, and and you, you know, your doctor tells you, you know, medically you, you need food to go with this. So I don't know, you you know, you don't get a hole in your stomach lining or something. Um, but also it's spiritual medicine. And it is not to be taken if you are nursing pregnant or you could become pregnant. So, um the, it's possible that when a woman, you know, leaves the time of being a virgin until the time of her widowhood, uh, that it's not going to be a part of her life, and she could mm-hmm. still abstain. Right? She could still abstain from, 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 uh, from maybe, maybe meat or maybe chocolate or, or sweets. There could still be abstention that will not damage, um, you know, her nursing or pregnancy or the possibility of pregnancy. But it is really it is inappropriate and and I would I would say not allowed. I would say that it is not permitted for those who are uh, in the way of women.
0: So. Uh, in wrapping up, like, what conclusions can we draw from everything that we've just kind of drunk from the fire hose <laughs> in terms of the, the, the rich history of fasting, not only within the tradition of the church, but even in the biblical witness on its benefits uh, in terms of not just health, but also in terms of spiritual health? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so medical health is I guess, like we said, it it is a, a case of double effect where it is not neither here nor there. Um, but it is a case of double effect where the primary aim here is is, is a matter of, of of spiritually fasting from sin. So like we see in the prophets, like we see in in, in in the apostles, the fathers, that the point of all of this is that you are to fast from things that are not sinful meet wine, cheese, whatever, so that you can learn to fast from things that are like pride and lust and greed and rage. So when you fast and you find yourself hungry, that's a great reminder to wage war against your hunger for sin. Paul says to discipline your body that you beat it into submission, right? You're, you're imitating Christ who fasted. And it's it's so interesting that you, you kind of share just maybe a little bit more in the divine life because God does not need to eat. And so fasting is this discipline. Um, it is this discipline whereby the devil's hold on us is weakened. It's 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 a weapon. It's a spiritual weapon against sin. There there are weapons of spiritual warfare. I mean that's why Lent is always called you know a time of spiritual warfare. These are our weapons, like Jesus says in Matthew six, fasting, almsgiving and prayer. So When we forego something as fundamental as food, we remind ourselves we are not enslaved to it. We are free in Christ not to do whatever we want, but we are free from sin. And also, this reminder that one day there will be no more fasting. The same way there will be no tears or crying or pain or death, there will be a day when there is no more fasting. When the bridegroom returns and soon will call us to the wedding feast, um, on that day there will be no fasting. There will be endless feasting uh, in the presence of the Lamb at his feast, which lasts forever. But until then, uh, we fast and take pains to be set free from the filth of our sin and to be rich in the fruits of love.
0: Well, that's a wonderful picture of how the Lord makes use of or employs or puts into service even the small things that we can do to wage war against the, our greatest enemy, uh, the devil, our own sinful nature, and death. Uh, so thanks for your time for taking us through this history and, and really encouraging us to, uh, to take pains uh, throughout the year to find a way to discipline our bodies so that we may wage war against the flesh against sin, against the world and the devil. So thanks for your time and your insight, Ian. I look forward to chatting with you again.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me.